Chapter 1 is our scripture reading, Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things, to or to the advantage of 
the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Our text this evening, beloved, is Ephesians 1, verse 13, and especially the latter part of this verse, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1 verse 13, and particularly the latter part of the verse, is for many a little understood text. There are many other things in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 this great blessing of God for our salvation that are, that are well known and stand out in the consciousness of the church. That third verse stating that all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ are ours. We know about that. The fourth verse, which talks about our being chosen, or literally elected in Christ, unconditionally, before the foundation of the world, in connection with the fifth verse, our predestination, that is, our eternal destiny in the new heavens and the new earth, was pre or before determined, before the creation of the world. We know and love that too. Verse 7's statement that in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's dear. That verse 11, its famous statement, that God worketh all things according to His purpose. He works all things after the counsel of His own will. That can be quoted. But what about verse 13? Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Probably not as well known or as well understood. That's what we're focusing on tonight as it leads us to the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning. For yet others... Ephesians 1 verse 13 is a controversial text because, practically all agree, it concerns the assurance of salvation. How do I personally know that I am a child of God? Are all believers assured or just some? How does one know if they're included in the covenant of grace or not. When is it that the believer receives this certainty? And each and every one of us need to be assured that 
we are the recipients of our Heavenly Father's love and the beneficiaries of His free salvation. Because without this, we are of all men most miserable. And there is a third point regarding our text by way of introduction, probably less known or, for others, more controversial. The third point is that this is very obviously, rightly understood, a comforting text. Because first of all, it is about the Holy Spirit whom Jesus Christ told us to think of as the Comforter in John 14 through 16. This text explains one central way in which the Holy Spirit consoles us, namely by sealing us and by being a divine seal upon us and in us, and so assuring us of all of the blessings of our salvation. Let's consider then the sealing of the Spirit. First, the nature of this sealing, what it is, and second, the time or timing of this salvation, when the child of God is sealed or assured of his salvation. Logically, the first place to start in explaining the nature of sealing is to ask and answer the question, what are seals in the first place? And we're not talking about that sort of a seal, which is an aquatic creature. A seal is typically a piece of wax or lead or paper or whatever form with a distinctive stamped design. And seals have at least three main uses. And I'll give you clear biblical examples to nail this down and show that this is the way Scripture talks about seals and not just the English language or our society. Seals are marks of authenticity or authority. You will recall that Pharaoh gave his signet ring, which was a seal used for sealing, he gave that signet ring to Joseph, his prime minister, or the number two in the kingdom underneath him, in Genesis 41, so that Joseph would exercise the royal authority of Pharaoh as his authentic representative. I mean, theoretically, anyone in Egypt could say, I say or do this in the name of Pharaoh. But if the guy has Pharaoh's signet ring and he can use that ring to seal documents, then you know he's the authentic representative of Pharaoh. He has authority to enact legislation throughout the kingdom because he uses the seal. Seals are also used 
and this of course is closely related to the former point, seals are also used to witness a document. In Jeremiah chapter 32, the prophet was instructed by God to buy a field in Anathoth, a little town outside Jerusalem, as an instance of good faith, as it were, that though Judah would soon fall to the Babylonian army, that one day the Jews would come back and own the land in this area once again. And so in this transaction, the title deeds to this piece of land bought by Jeremiah, they were sealed by witnesses. So various local people used their seals to testify that true it is, Jeremiah has bought this field. Another use in Scripture of a seal. And here's our third and final instance, security. You'll recall from Revelation 5, the famous scroll sealed with seven seals. And no one was found able, no one was authorized to open that document except the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It took an authorized person with the right to open this special sealed and secured document. You may also recall that Daniel 6, when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, that door or stone enclosing him was sealed. It was made secure. You couldn't let him out because the seal would have shown signs of tampering. And now I say that even today, seals in our society are still used and used for similar purposes as marks of authenticity or authority as a witness and for security. Now, what about this sealing of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1 verse 13? All of these three or four ideas apply. Three or four, because it depends how you classify them. Those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and only those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, are the authentic or genuine children of God. That's key with a seal, a mark of authenticity or genuineness. Only those who are sealed with the Holy Spirit carry God's authority as prophets, priests, and kings as His sons and daughters. The seal indicates authority. The seal is a witness to us and in us that we are Christ's. The seal is a witness or testimony. And we who are sealed by the Holy Spirit are eternally secure in Jesus 
by God's grace. And underlying these various functions of seals, there's something even more basic to our sealing by the Holy Spirit, the truth of ownership or belonging. That is, the Spirit has sealed us because God owns us and we belong to Him because Jesus Christ has paid for our redemption. And with this seal upon us, true of each and every Christian in every age, wherever they happen to live, with that seal upon us, we have the hallmark of authentic Christians. We're God's representatives as His people. We have the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and we are secure because we are possessed by the triune God. And you, as a believer, young or old, have been stamped with God's own seal. The script on this seal could be said to read, You belong to me. And so this language of sealing may be new to you, maybe not, but whatever is the case regarding the language of sealing, the idea of sealing is certainly not new to you. It is the teaching of Lord's Day 1 of our Heidelberg Catechism, What is thy only comfort in life and death? It says that I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, and so I'm not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. It could have said, my only comfort in life and death is that I have, have been sealed on the basis of and in connection with the things mentioned in this text. And then, near the end of Lord's Day 1, answer 1, it says, By God's Holy Spirit, He assures me of eternal life. He assures me of eternal life. And this is the confession of each and every Christian as set forth definitively and creedally in the Heidelberg Catechism. We're talking about sealing. Maybe the language is unfamiliar. Maybe the concept of sealing as authentic, genuine, testimony, authority, those key words is hard to grasp. But it boils down to this, that I am owned by him and he has sealed me as his own with such a seal that I, according to the new man, and by faith, know it. The flesh makes me doubt, but the real, true, inner me is sure that I belong to Jesus Christ, my faithful Savior. Though I am assaulted with hellish doubts Deep down, I always know it. And even when I doubt, I doubt as a believer. 
and God always brings me back. How then is this seal related to the Holy Spirit? You could say, and all of these statements are true, God seals us or me with the Holy Spirit. Or the Holy Spirit seals me. Or the Holy Spirit is Himself God's seal in me. And so the Holy Spirit, and here I'm echoing the language of Lord's Day 1, the Holy Spirit personally witnesses to me, the Christian says, I belong to the triune God. He owns me, and not just the better members of the church, body and soul. I always belong to Him in Jesus Christ, even though I struggle and I'm tempted. And to put this in theological terminology, the seal is about assurance, certainty. The personal assurance or certainty of my own salvation. And it is striking that here in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4 and 2, Chronicle, 2 Corinthians 1, it is always the Holy Spirit, not the Son or the Father, and yet the Holy Spirit not without the Son or the Father, but it's always the Holy Spirit who is said to be the seal and who is said to assure us of our salvation. And this is not only deliberate, but meaningful. Within the Holy Trinity, it is the Holy Spirit who is the bond between the Father and the Son, a bond of personal love and fellowship, a divine, inseparable, personal union. And so, when it comes to our salvation, the Holy Spirit is the bond who joins us to the triune God in Jesus. He consecrates us. He dedicates us to Him. He joins us forever, inseparably. And this is what we see here in Ephesians 1 verse 13. The Spirit joins us to the living God. The Spirit is the personal channel through whom we receive this salvation through believing. And He is the one who witnesses to us of the reality of this union with God. And this is the sort of witness that we need, a living witness, a seal in our consciousness that we are Christ's forever and a witness who is personally God, and so who is able to quell and overcome the evil doubts which arise from our flesh and which also flood upon us from the world outside, that I am saved and that I know that personally I will not and even cannot perish. And that doesn't lead us to carelessness. That leads us to greater thankfulness and service.
Now, this sealing of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1 verse 13 needs to be understood, of course, in its context. Its context is the long sentence in the original Greek that is Ephesians 1 verse 3 through verse 14. Twelve verses in one sentence in a long blessing of God. For all these spiritual blessings which we have in Christ Jesus according to eternal, unconditional election and which are enumerated in terms of the work of the Father, then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. By the way, the Apostle Peter has a similar thing in his first canonical epistle, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 12. They both begin with a doxology or blessing of God in terms of salvation, this long, rich, complicated, but blessed sentence. And by the way, this listing of all spiritual blessings, verse 3, literally means all blessings of the Holy Spirit. So let's enumerate some of these in turn. And let's notice that all of these blessings are, to use the message of verse 13, all these blessings enumerated in this long sentence are sealed to us so that we are assured of them by the Holy Spirit. Verses 4 and 5, therefore, do not merely teach eternal, sovereign election, but in connection with verse 13, verses 4 and 5 teach that the Holy Spirit seals this truth upon the hearts of all the elect and predestinate. That's what the passage is teaching. Verse 7 speaks about redemption through Christ's blood. Redemption through Christ's blood alone. The Holy Spirit applies that word to God's people so that He says within us, through the word, I have bought you. Verse 7 goes on to speak about the forgiveness of sins the Spirit's testimony in the believer is, I have blotted out all your transgressions. Again, I repeat the point. All of these blessings are in the Holy Spirit in verses 3 through 14. And verse 13 says that the Spirit seals them to us. Verses 10 and 11 speak of our eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, so that the Spirit's witness in us is this. You, child of God, are included in God's great purpose of ultimately uniting all of heaven and earth in a new, blessed, sinless world in Jesus Christ. And the refrains of verses 6, 12, and 14 that say, to the praise of the glory of His grace, the Holy Spirit 
says to us, you are dedicated to the praise of the ever-merciful Father in heaven. Every man, woman, and young person, this is what the Holy Spirit, through the Word, seals, testifies, and witnesses to in your heart. And you say, but I have doubts. And you say, but I struggle to believe this. But that doesn't actually oppose what I'm saying. Because all of those doubts come from the flesh. You have this seal of the Spirit within you. He testifies to the truth in the light of God's Word and empowered by the Spirit. Battle against, overcome, and vanquish all despair and lack of certainty. You may recall that the theme of the epistle to the Ephesians is the church as the body of Jesus Christ. The church as the body of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 is saying, the church is the body of Jesus Christ according as he chose or elected her before the foundation of the world. That's the church. Verse 7 says, the church is the body of Jesus Christ as that bride for whom he shed his blood, so he redeemed her. But the point of Ephesians 1 verse 13 is this, the church is the body of Jesus Christ, and every member of the church is to know and be assured of the truth that personally he or she is saved and in that body of Jesus Christ as a living member. And here we pause to reflect a moment upon the teaching of the Holy Spirit found in terms of Pentecostalism and Charismaticism with its foolish and erroneous and destructive idea of miraculous gifts for today so that we can raise the dead and heal the sick and so forth and speak gibberish. And the Christian religion teaches here in Ephesians 1 that the sealing of the Spirit, that's crucial. That all of these things don't count for anything. They're not even true. What's really essential is that the Holy Spirit does this astounding work overcoming the world and the flesh and the devil, that he gives me peace with God through believing in Jesus Christ so that I know through his inner testimony and according to the word that I belong to my faithful Savior. That's real spirituality. And here we notice that the Holy Spirit in our text is called the Holy Spirit of promise. This bit of promise is an objective genitive, which simply means he is the promised Holy Spirit. Promise here is singular. It refers to the one promise set forth in many different perspectives in the Old Testament, but the one promise of messianic salvation 
for all of God's elect children. And this is an astounding point too, because this means that the Old Testament does not only promise messianic salvation. It does that. It not only promises the messianic salvation, which includes all of the blessings of Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14, admittedly in Old Testament form and shadows, but it teaches it. And it not only teaches this text, that the Old Testament promises salvation with all of these blessings by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more in the Old Testament than many people realize, especially dispensationalists. But this text teaches us that the Old Testament promises that the same Spirit who applies Christ's salvation to us, the Old Testament promises that that same Spirit also seals this assurance to us so as to assure all of God's people that they are personally saved. And this too is signified and sealed to us in the Lord's Supper. Preparatory sermon. We're going to say more about the Lord's Supper as a seal next Sunday morning. But to get back to that point, you may say, okay, the Old Testament promises the coming of Christ, that He will save. 1 Peter 1, 10, 11, and 12 is especially clear in that. And I can see too, it requires a bit more thought, but I can see that the Old Testament promises that not only will Christ come, but the Spirit will come to apply these blessings to us. Joel 2, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 32, Zechariah 12, verse 10, other passages. God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and I will enrich you with the waters of life. But where does the Old Testament teach us that the Holy Spirit is promised to assure us of messianic salvation. Let me give you one text. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. A new heart also will I give you. That's the new heart of regeneration. The first beginnings in us of the work of God of applying to us our salvation, which was purchased by Jesus. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you by means of the Holy Spirit, who also grants us the new birth, John 3. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh that's responsive, so that we can hear and obey and love God as our God. Ah, there's assurance. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. Monergism, the grace of God alone. I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. 
And involved in this is the truth that the children of God know the difference between God's commandments and the commandments of men. You will keep my statutes. You will know that they are my statutes that I have given to you as my child, and you will do them as a good work out of thankfulness for your salvation because you know you are saved. You have a new heart, which is sensitive to me and responds to me. And then verse 28 continues, Ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and the covenant formula, Ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. And this is of no use whatsoever, this truth, you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God. If the Christian wanders around, wondering, never sure, you know, am I a child of God? Is he my father? When this passage said, you will be my people, it means you will know that you are my people. And you will know that I am your God. This is included in the truth, the very truth of the covenant, in its covenant formula, that you belong to me. And I, in Jesus Christ, belong to you forever. You will be my people, I will be your God, and this will never, ever end. Now, having explained the nature of this sealing, what it is, we come to our second and final point, the time or timing of this sealing. When is the Christian sealed? Let me first present, with all due respect, the wrong view. This wrong view, classically, was held by some if not many, of the Puritans, especially in the 17th century, and their successor. And while disagreeing with them, we note that they were, as a class, godly, prayerful men. They believed in infant baptism. They fenced the Lord's Supper. They sung the Psalms. They had a high view of the office of the ministry and of the Christian sacraments. They believed, by and large, in sovereign particular grace, double predestination, particular atonement. One of the best treatments of that great subject is written by one of the men I'm going to disagree with. Some of them even taught that the covenant was all about friendship and fellowship with God. But many of them were wrong on this subject of sealing or assurance. This wrong view holds, both in the 17th century and the successors of the Puritans in this regard, with people today, that this assurance of salvation, or to use the language of our text, this sealing of the Holy Spirit, usually if not always, but in the vast majority of cases comes some time after faith in Jesus Christ. For some people, they will be assured a relatively short time after they first believe. For many, and really when you read their writings, it is most, it will take years. Many years, typically. 
before the person could say, yes, I'm saved in Jesus Christ. For others, it may only come a short while before they die. So that's the question, when? Related to this is the question, who or whom? Because not all Christians at any particular time, and probably not even most Christians at any particular time, we're talking about real Christians here, not all of them are sealed by the Holy Spirit and sure of their salvation. Some of them are, and these people are God's, quote, particular favorites. That's the language that they used, God's particular favorites, but not all. And therefore, the minister, amongst many other aspects or ways of viewing his labors, the minister is to call most believers who haven't received assurance, the minister is to call most believers in the congregation to a quest for assurance. It goes something like this. You don't have assurance. You can get assurance. You must seek assurance. And you must seek it earnestly, fervently, passionately. And you must know, too, that your quest for assurance may take years, many years, but hopefully, if you're zealous enough, finally you will get it sometime before you die. Now, you may recognize in this a particular form of the second blessing. The Puritans of whom I'm speaking, at least many of them, and their successors, they would say that there's a second blessing. You're saved, but some ways down the road, you get a second blessing. Later on, there was the movement of revivalism and revivalists, and they changed the contents of the second blessing they argued that you can receive this additional blessing sometime subsequent to your conversion, which will empower you for service in the kingdom of God. You had some ability to serve the Lord, but then you receive this second blessing, and now you're really on fire for the Lord. Others, they are called the perfectionists, believed that the second blessing... The content changes here again. The second blessing is entire sanctification or perfect love or sinless perfection. That if you seek that long enough and diligently enough, God will make you sinlessly perfect in this life. Because we do believe in sinless perfection. But we don't believe it happens in this life. It happens in the next life. And then, of course, the content of the second blessing, something subsequent to initial salvation, it keeps getting worse. With Pentecostalism and charismaticism, it's called their distinctive view of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which enables someone, this is its initial evidence, to speak with tongues, uh, made up language.
But having looked at this wrong view of the sealing of the Spirit, the right view is that this sealing of the Spirit takes place when we believe the gospel. And here we have to, sadly, make a comment about our authorized version, regarding which we think very highly. But Ephesians 1 verse 13 says, "...in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise." And this could be misleading, suggesting the wrong view. And probably it actually points to that wrong view more than the right view. In whom after you believed, maybe years or decades later, then you were sealed. But it is better, and this is the correct translation, and I'm going to prove it too, to render the word after as when, so that the meaning is best conveyed with this translation, in whom also when ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit. Now you can be thankful that I'm not going to try to explain this grammatically. It involves all sorts of complicated things like aorists and participles. But I'm going to show this theologically and from the context so that everybody will be able to follow it and, I trust, agree. Think of it. Let's go back to basics. Verses 3 through 14, this one sentence, it begins in verse 3, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. And then these blessings are enumerated. And then verse 13 says, You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were blessed with all spiritual blessings. Here they are, redemption, forgiveness of sins, and all the rest. And you were sealed with the Holy Spirit for all Christians. Right from the start of your Christian life. Not just some and not just some after some years and after some questing. Here's another angle on it. Think of this in terms of Christ. In whom, it says, when you believed, you were sealed. Well, every Christian believes in Christ. And in Christ, you are sealed. You can't have a Christian who's not in Christ. So if you're in Christ, you're sealed. If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, He is the seal. Think of that phrase in our text, that Holy Spirit of promise, the promised Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is promised in the Old Testament. Is that promise a conditional promise where you have to fulfill conditions and do something? Or is it an unconditional, sovereign, and gracious promise that achieves salvation, the salvation of all believers, which salvation in Christ and by the Holy Spirit includes assurance, which is part of our salvation. And then we return to the word seal. You are sealed with that Holy Spirit. Seal is about ownership. All Christians, absolutely all Christians, 
are owned by God. Owned by God according to predestination, according to purchase. And we were all sealed when we believed the promise. And this, of course, is reformed and confessional teaching because Lord's Day 7 of our catechism defines faith as a certain knowledge and an assured confidence. Assured confidence. That's what faith is. And all Christians have faith. It is an assured confidence. It is assurance. It is confidence that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given of God merely by His grace in Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 1 verse 13 tells us how the Holy Spirit assures us and seals us. It's through the gospel. In whom also ye trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, when ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit. We don't listen to secret inner voices. We don't need or want any of these bizarre mystical experiences. The Holy Spirit does not whisper in your ear when you're in the bathroom that you're saved. He assures us through the Word. The Spirit works through the Word. The Word is blessed by the Spirit. The Word read, the Word preached as the way of assurance. And God works this assurance as we hear the true gospel, the Word of truth of the gospel, not a false or corrupted gospel. So that God comes, here's the order of our salvation as applied to us logically. There's the preaching or the reading of Scripture, the external call. There's faith that receives it, and the Spirit seals the truth of the message that's out there and in the Word in the heart of the believer. And this same Holy Spirit uses not only the Word, but the sacraments, including the second sacrament, the Lord's Supper, which is a sign and seal of the one everlasting covenant of grace to you and I personally. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Father in heaven, assure us of the glory of our salvation. Help us, Lord God, to lay hold on the promises to set our affection upon things above and to embrace the truth of thy word. And out of that confidence, work in us a greater love for thee and diligence in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.